right. Well, welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Um, this morning, uh, we're doing a live hangout. Uh, this was supposed to start at 10 a.m. Uh, we had plans to um, have a discussion slash debate with uh, Michael Yannette. Um, at this point, he has uh, not arrived in the hangout um, with our pre-agreed upon time. So <clears throat> at this point, I will be moving forward. Uh, hopefully, everything is all right with Michael. But uh, Michael, if you do join later on, you are welcome to join in on the Hangout uh, with the link that I provided for you. So for those of you that uh, have noticed that we have not had any shows for a while, uh, that is because I have been renovating my office. Um, I'm actually shooting this on a card table, um, and I don't have any of my microphones or equipment really set up. This room is a mess. I got books stacked up all over on the floor. Uh, I've got to make room for them. I'm going to be building some bookshelves, kind of wrap around this room, uh, putting a desk in the middle and getting everything set back up. So, so we've been a little uh, out of pocket for a little while here, but uh, I did have uh, Michael uh, was addressing and making some comments uh, on some of my videos online. So I finally challenged him to stand up um, on his views. And he had agreed to come and join in and have a discussion. Uh, and he wanted to talk about uh, two specific topics. And that is free will and limited atonement. So I had prepared uh, some stuff to have this discussion with Michael. So uh, since he uh, has not uh, joined in, I'm just going to go ahead and I guess we'll talk about these topics uh, for a little bit with some of the prepared material um, that uh, I had. Uh, one of the things I wanted to just briefly mention before I get started is kind of a, a breaking uh, news event. Uh, just briefly mention it, but uh, uh, my my request would be that uh, uh, we would send out our prayers uh, for R.C. Sproul Jr. Uh, with the recent news of uh, DUI and and uh, uh, being under the influence with a minor in the car uh, allegedly. So uh, we uh, need to remember him in our prayers and uh, pray for his uh, full repentance and um, understanding of his sin and uh, his return to fellowship with the Lord. Um, I have seen some responses to this that are a little concerning to me. Uh, some people saying, well, why are we... Uh, showing such compassion to R.C. Sproul, and we didn't give this to men like Clayton Jennings. Well, uh, there is a significant difference here, <laughs> I believe. If you can't see the difference, I'm not sure how we can help you with that. But uh, uh, Clayton Jennings is one who um, obviously uh, did not have sound theology in, in many areas, uh, used his popularity and 
the gospel to um, promote himself and to uh, to get himself noticed by the opposite sex as much as he could possibly do. Um, his repeated um, acts of uh, seduction and lying and and all that, uh, and his uh, complete non-repentance since then are of no comparison to R.C. Sproul Jr. Um, R.C. Sproul has been uh, orthodox in his beliefs uh, in all the primary tenets of the faith, um, and he has not wavered from that. Uh, he has gone through some difficult things in the last few years. These things do not excuse uh, some of the things that he has done, but uh, I have to understand that uh, with the loss of his wife and having eight children, that uh, these are difficult things that we as human beings go through, and even uh, the redeemed of God can can fall into sin and despair in some of these times and maybe do things that uh, they would not uh, have, have done under sometimes the best of times. So our prayers need to be for R.C., uh, Sproul Jr., and uh, we pray for his um, restoration and fellowship. Um, this does not necessarily mean that uh, um, someone like him has to be restored into a position of leadership or anything like that. Um, however, uh, we pray that uh, his fellowship would be uh, would continue with his church and so forth. So what... Um, I'm going to do is I'm going to jump into at this point <clears throat> into the the topic, the first topic that Michael and I were going to address, and this was free will. And so I'm going to uh, just jump into some of the prepared stuff I had in, in talking about free will uh, and looking at it from a, a biblical perspective. Uh, perspective and also examining it from a logical, simply logical and philosophical standpoint. So one of the things that we have to do whenever we have discussions like this about the nature of the will, um, what uh, what is even meant by those terms uh, to will or the will, uh, we have to define them. And so um, I define, so I'll give you my definitions uh, that I work from. And so when I use the term will as a noun, um, I mean the power of choice or the power of choosing. Uh, when I use will as a verb, um, I mean, uh, for example, to will something. Uh, my definition is to make a choice. So... <clears throat> Um, the position that Michael would have been defending in this discussion would have been one often called uh, libertarian free will uh, or contracausal freedom or autonomous free will. If, uh, if those terms don't make sense to all of you, if you're not familiar with them, I'll, I'll go into further uh, describing what that means. Uh, the libertarian position is that the will of man is self-determined. The will is indifferent to any presented choices and not predisposed in any particular direction and determines its own choices. So that is what libertarian free will is. 
um, what contracausal freedom means. Uh, they would believe that the will is not determined by anything external to it. Um, a libertarian's presupposition is that if the will is determined by anything outside of it, it is no longer free. Um, anyone that holds to libertarian free will will say that if any choices are necessary by either the nature of a person or God's determination, uh, for example, just anything external to the will, then the individual is not actually free um, and therefore is not responsible for their choices. Um, they have a presupposition that if any choice is necessary outside of the self-determination of the will, then it is not worthy of praise or condemnation. Um, I just do not believe that that position is uh, tenable from a, a biblical or philosophical position. Uh, the first thing uh, to, uh, well, even before we get into that, let me just go ahead and, and lay out. So that's the libertarian position. So I'll, I'll go ahead and lay out what, what my position is and the one that I would have uh, defended in this uh, discussion. Um, is that my position is that the will is free to make choices without coercion or force. So in that sense, uh, the will is free. Um, the will makes choices or we make choices determined by the greatest motivation or desire. And our greatest desire is determined by our nature. And our nature is determined by God. Um, if we are fallen uh, sons and daughters of Adam, um, our nature is a fallen nature, and it is not free. So the next thing that uh, I want to get into is from a biblical perspective, uh, the scripture is clear on two counts. Uh, first of all, that God is sovereign, uh, that he declares the end from the beginning. Um, Isaiah 46.10 he accomplishes all his purposes and frustrates the plans of the peoples. Uh, it tells us in Psalm 33, 9 through 15. Uh, scripture tells us that God turns the heart of the king wherever he wills. That's in Proverbs 21, 1. And that God establishes the steps of man, Proverbs 16, 9. Uh, David also declares in Psalm 139, 16, that all his days have been written and ordained by God. And we are told in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who are called. And he works uh, all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. <clears throat> the uh, second biblical perspective that we have to look at, so we have to look at this from two points. We have to look at it from God's decree, um, his sovereignty, his, his uh, creative decree, um, his uh, secret decree, sometimes so-called. Um, the second thing we have to look at is also man's nature from a biblical perspective. So the scripture is replete with references to man's inability, uh, things that man cannot do. Uh, for example, it says in Romans 8, 7 through 8, that those in the flesh cannot please God, that they are not able to do so. So there we have a cannot, something man is not able to do. He cannot please God. Uh, we're told that no one can come to Jesus unless drawn by the Father in John 6, 44. 
Uh, we're told that the wicked hate the light and do not come to the light in John 3.20. It says the flesh is no help at all in salvation in John 6.63. Um, Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 13.23 that those who are accustomed to doing evil cannot do good any more than a leopard can change his spots. Um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man cannot accept the things of God uh, and cannot do good in Romans 3.10-12. through 12. Um, Scripture also tells us that uh, we are all by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.1. And John 8.34-36 through 36 says that man is a slave to sin and to be free, the Son must set us free. So if a man is a slave to sin then his will is not free in that sense. Uh, libertarian free willers also assume that if anything is done by any necessity outside of the will itself, it is not worthy of praise or condemnation, nor is it actually free. This is the presupposition they bring to this discussion. Um, however, uh, this is going to quickly get you into trouble with Scripture. Uh, for anyone that has any sort of high view of Scripture at all, um, you need to ponder that particular implication. Um, the question you have to ask yourself is, was the self-giving and sacrificing of Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament? For example, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Um, and is God's word sure, true? This high view of scripture that uh, we as Christians ought to have, God's word sure and true and anything that it prophesies necessarily going to come to pass? <clears throat> if the um, answer to this is yes, then was the will of Christ free in a libertarian sense? Um, by my definition of free will, it was, but I'm, we're using the libertarian sense of freedom here that if anything is by necessity, it is not free. That's the presupposition we're dealing with. So if we use that presupposition, was then the will of Christ free in a libertarian sense? Is the, is the work of Christ worthy of praise, even though it was entirely necessary that the choices that Christ made be in fact made? Um, everything that Christ did, all the choices that he made by his own free will, were prophesied in the Old Testament and therefore necessary that they occur. So the question you have to ask yourself as a libertarian free willer is, did Christ have a free will in your sense of libertarian free will? Another question that you have to ask yourself is, were the writers of Scripture free in their act of writing Scripture? Um, are they worthy of our praise, even though their actions of writing Scripture and prophesying were determined by God outside of their own will? Um, it's a question you have to ask yourself. So the libertarian free willer assumes also a disconnect uh, between the nature and the will. However, every Christian believes that God can't lie and that he cannot sin by his very nature. Uh, so is God free in his choices? If we, once again, use libertarian presuppositions, does he have a free will since his very nature necessitates the choices that he can make? 
Is God worthy of our praise and adoration for the good choices he has made on our behalf as his children, even though these choices are necessary by his very nature? Um, another question you have to ask yourself from your libertarian. So in other words, your presupposition that there's no such thing as free will unless it's libertarian. Um, as the saints of God, once we are sealed in righteousness for eternity in the new heaven and new earth, it tells us that we will not have the capacity or the ability to sin. Uh, will we then no longer have free will um, if we assume a libertarian view of the will? Uh, one of the other things that we have to do um, in this discussion is we have to distinguish uh, between our creator's will and our will, which is a creaturely will, a created will. God's is a non-created will. Um, his is a non-contingent will. Ours is contingent upon our creator, is dependent upon it. Uh, while God's will is bound to his nature in the same way that our will is bound to our nature, God's willing or choosing is not determined or hindered by anything outside of his nature. Um, God, in this sense, is autonomous. Uh, he's not autonomous in the sense that his will is independent from his nature. He is autonomous in the sense that he can do anything that he wills, uh, which is consistent with his nature. He can accomplish anything uh, that he wills. Um, however, we as creatures, whether it is man in his innocence, as Adam was, or even fallen man, um, are not, uh, nor have ever been, or ever even will be autonomous in that sense. Um, our will as gods is linked to our nature, but even those choices we can make consistent with our nature can be limited by the will of God, the will of others, and natural barriers. Uh, while I have the natural capacity to walk, and I have a nature that allows me to choose to walk, I can't walk through a wall. And uh, I may have the natural ability to choose to walk out of the National Museum of Natural History with the Hope Diamond, but I will definitely be hindered by the wills of some very determined security guards. Uh, God has, however, none of these limitations. Um, the libertarian free willer's uh, position is, is that the will of fallen man is completely indifferent uh, between choices that are pleasing to God, uh, which would be that which is good, and those that are not pleasing to God, i.e. evil. Uh, so in other words, man has the equal capacity to choose evil as good. Um, if he actually believes that, then he has, in effect, completely denied the Christian doctrine of original sin and has fully embraced uh the heretical Pelagian view. If he admits that man has, if the libertarian free willer admits that man has any inclination at all towards sin, even um, you know a five degree leaning towards sin, um, because of uh, original sin, um, and that man was actually born with this inclination without his own consent or choice. In other words, man didn't make the choice to have this sinful inclination towards uh, evil. Um, and because of this uh, un 
chosen inclination, he by necessity makes sinful choices. How is he then culpable for these choices if we accept the libertarian presupposition that we cannot be held responsible for choices that are necessary? Um, all of us as humans understand, uh, also understand and accept the law of causality. If we see an object in motion, we see order or design, we assume a cause. Uh, this is also the law of identity simply applied to actions. Uh, cause and effect. If we see a rock flying through the air, we assume something caused it. We do not conclude it is its own cause. Um, most Christian libertarian free willers would object to atheists asserting that the universe created itself because an effect cannot be its own cause. Um, but the issue with that, with his objection to the atheist, is that he has also, in effect, refuted his own position on the will. Um, if you ask a libertarian free willer um, what determines a particular choice, uh, he will have to say the will. Uh, but if the will is the power of choosing, and to will is to choose, then he is saying a choice determines a choice. If he is asserting that a prior choice determines every choice, then the prior choice to the choice requires a choice, and we have an infinite regress. If he asserts that there is a cause outside of the will that determines the first choice in the train of choices, then the will is not free in a libertarian sense, as its first choice was determined, and all the successive choices follow from that first determination. So then the will is not free in a libertarian sense. If he attempts to escape both of these two implications by stating that a particular choice determines itself, he violates the law of causality by having an effect be its own cause. So I just don't believe a libertarian view of the will is uh, tenable in any sense, uh, even from a philosophical standpoint. One of the other things uh, that I have a big problem with, uh, the libertarian view of the will, is that um, to assert that the will is entirely self-determined um, is to attribute to it uh, an incommunicable attribute of God, and that is his aseity. Um, aseity means that God is not dependent or contingent upon anything outside of himself for his own existence. Um, that there is nothing prior, uh, nothing necessary prior to him for his own existence, for his own actions, um, uh, for himself. Um, but this is an incommunicable attribute of God. This is not something that can be communicated to, to any creature. This is... Uh, an attribute that belongs to the creator alone. So man is entirely dependent upon God for his existence. Man does not have a seity. If one asserts that the will of man is entirely self-determined and its choosing is in no way dependent on God, then he is asserting that man's will has a seity, which is uh, frankly absurd and idolatrous. So, um, I just I don't believe that the libertarian view of the will is coherent, uh, both from a biblical and a philosophical point of view. 
Um, I would encourage those of you out there that are interested in uh, studying and looking into uh, more of this is uh, read Jonathan Edwards' uh, essay on the freedom of the will. Uh, a fantastic work. It's one that I've um, read through at least twice. And it's it's a, a really, really good insight there. So uh, the next uh, topic that we're just going to go into is uh, what I was going to discuss with Michael. And uh, just to see if he actually emailed me, let me give me Give me a moment here to check my email, see if he did respond, and uh, he has not. So um, I'll just go into the next topic. Uh, we were going to talk about limited atonement. I was going to affirm, and he was going to deny. And so um, once again, just like I was going to do when we talk about uh, when we talked about the will is as we have to make sure that we define what we mean uh, so that we're not talking past each other. So when I say limited atonement and when I say I believe in limited atonement, I mean that the atonement of Christ on the cross was intended for and applied to the elect of God. It means that Christ completely saved certain individuals at the cross. The atonement was particular, not general, uh, in its intention, and the effect, uh, both the intention and the effect was particular, and both the intention and the effect, but sufficient for all. There's no deficiency in the blood of Christ. Uh, there is no deficiency in the work of Christ. It was simply that it was not God's intention to save every single person with the atoning work of Christ. Uh, the doctrine of limited atonement does not teach that Christ's sacrifice was incapable of saving all people, but that was not intended for all people. Um, one of the things that I want to note here also that uh, most people have not taken the time to think through is that all Christians, actual Christians who believe the Bible, um, do limit the atonement in its effect. Um, if any Christian acknowledges uh, the biblical truth of hell and judgment and that there are members of the human race that indeed do go to hell, then they are limiting the effect of the atonement. Uh, only universalists uh, have a view of the atonement that is limitless in both intention and effect. Um, so when we have discussions and debates on this, the Typically, the discussion, unless you're talking with a universalist, um, is going to focus on the intention of the atonement and not the effect of the atonement, the intention and purpose of the atonement. So uh, those who um, usually deny the doctrine of limited atonement um, will say and affirm that it was God's intention and purpose to save all people uh, with the atonement, but that God is not able to accomplish what he intends, so therefore the atonement is only effective for some. Um, my position is that God actually accomplishes all his purposes, uh, so therefore God's intention for the atonement is perfectly accomplished by the work of Christ, who always does the will of his Father, 
and what is pleasing to him in John 8, 29. Now, that's the, the typical synergist Arminian view who denies limited atonement. Um, they would say that God purposes and intends to save all people, um, but that he is not able to do that because man with his will doesn't libertarian free will doesn't comply with God. And so he's not able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Now I will give the Amaraldian or the four point Calvinist, um, uh, a pass on that particular, um, um, objection to their position because, uh, the Amaraldian would say that he would also, say that it's not God's intention to save everyone. Um, so that he doesn't elect, if it was, he would elect everyone because they still believe in unconditional election. Um, I don't know exactly the motivation for most four-point Calvinists of why they would deny limited atonement when they are obviously accepting the, the monergist view that God does not have the intent and purpose of actually saving every single person, every single sinner. Because <clears throat> he's not obligated to save any sinner, in fact. The fact that he even saves one is, is amazing. Um, and uh, not by any necessity. Uh, <clears throat> only from the kind intention of his own will does he actually uh, choose to save even one person. But it's amazing that he saves many. And so... Uh, the Amaraldian's position on the four-point Calvinist, uh, the one who, the Christmas Calvinist, the one who is uh, Noel, you know, he, he doesn't hold to L. <clears throat> um, I'm not really quite sure how he can uh, do that with really any sort of consistency, uh, but uh, <clears throat> I digress with that. So um, when we... Uh, get into talking about the extent of the intention and purpose of the atonement. Uh, we have to uh, start with what were the intentions of the triune God in the work of the incarnate son in Isaiah 46, 10 and Daniel four thirty five, It's made very clear that the God of scripture uh, accomplishes all his purposes, his intentions and his will. Uh, God's purpose in the atoning work of the eternal Son of God is laid out in Scripture over and over. God uh, purposes to set the captives free in Isaiah 61.1 and Luke 4.18, uh, to perfect for all time in Hebrews 10.14, to save the lost in Luke 19.10, to take away sins in 1 John 3.5, to set free from sin, Revelation 1.5, and to sanctify and cleanse the church, Ephesians 5.26, and to cancel the record of debt in Colossians 2.14. So the question I have to ask <clears throat> those who deny limited atonement is in whatever view of the atoning work of Christ that you have, whether you're moral government theory of the atonement, ransom theory of the atonement, or what, whatever your view is, um, or if you actually hold to penal substitutionary atonement, and I don't know how you Arminians hold to that, but uh, maybe a discussion for another time. <clears throat> but uh, the question I would have for you is, in whatever view that you hold to, um, 
does the work of Christ actually accomplish any of those things <coughs> that we just got done listening? Does he, did it actually save the lost? Did it take away any sins? <coughs> did it uh, set uh, anyone free from sin? Did it sanctify and cleanse the church? And not the church is just this uh, ambiguous, empty box where people put themselves into. No, a church is a group of people, the ecclesia, the called out ones. So did he actually sanctify and cleanse a group of people called the church with his work? <coughs> so uh, to me, the scripture is clear uh, that Jesus Christ in his self-giving work on the cross perfected for all time, canceled the record of debt, took away the sins, sanctified and cleansed, and set free a particular group of people, the elect of God. <coughs> And as John Owen uh, so ably put in his uh, great work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, he points out that there's really only three options, um, that either Christ died for all of the sins of some people or some of the sins of all people or all of the sins of all people. If he died for all of the sins of all people, then why does anyone go to hell? If someone responds and says, well, they go to hell for unbelief, then is not unbelief a sin that Christ died for? Either unbelief is not a sin, or Christ then just died for some of the sins of all people. <clears throat> if Christ just died for some of the sins of all people, then who could stand? Uh, for it says in Psalm 130, uh, verse 3, it says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Uh, even the most faithful of Christians has moments of unbelief. Uh, does he lose his salvation at that point, uh, rendering ineffective the atoning work of Christ? Um, uh, if unbelief is not a sin, then why does Revelation 21.8 have the unbelieving and the faithless cast into hell? Uh, the only remaining option um, is that he died for all of the sins of some people, which is what I um, affirm and uh, will defend. Um, <clears throat> the New Testament is clear that all members of the New Covenant are believers. Uh, in Hebrews 8, 8 through 13, uh, it tells us that, and that unbelievers are not members of the New Covenant. <clears throat> At the Last Supper, uh, in Matthew 26, 27, uh, and 28, uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says that his blood is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, the blood of the covenant is poured out for those who are in the covenant, not for those outside of the covenant. Uh, therefore, it follows that Christ's blood was only for believers. Um, also, the other thing to note in Matthew 26, 27 through 28 is that his blood was poured out for many. Uh, the text does not say all. Uh, this is also what Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 12. It says that he uh, will bear the sins of many. Uh, many does not mean, nor ever can mean all. Uh, however, all in its context can mean either all of the elect uh, all of the people of God, 
uh, all kinds of people, um, or all people in the sense of both uh, Jews and Gentiles, and not uh, just the Jews. Um, A.W. Pink puts it in his book on the sovereignty of God, he puts it that all can either mean all um, without distinction uh, or all without exception. Um, and in the, those are the two senses that the term all can be used. And so when we say it's, it's every single person who's ever lived and we're using all in that sense, then we're saying it's all without exception that, um, but all is also used in the way of all without distinction for who they are, like, uh, whether they're Jews or Gentiles or whether they're um, kings or those who are in authority, um, different categories of men. Uh, it can mean all without distinction for their state in life, their ethnicity or um, genetic history or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> so uh, scripture does affirm in many places, though, that, Christ died to save many and not all. And uh, the few texts that do say that uh, use the term all, we have to look at it in context to see uh, what it actually means there. Uh, another thing that we have to think about when we think of the atonement is we have to think of uh, in Hebrews, it makes it very clear that Jesus is our high priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood was a type, an example, and a shadow of the work of Christ as our high priest. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, the high priest uh, both atoned for and mediated for those for whom he made the sacrifice. Um, and in the same way, uh, Jesus does the same thing. He atones for and he mediates for a particular people. Um, in the Old Testament, the uh, uh, Levitical high priest, uh, he um, sacrificed and did atonement and mediated for the people of God, the children of Israel. He did not atone for and mediate for the Egyptians, uh, the Edomites, the Canaanites. Uh, he only offered the sacrifice and mediated for the people of God. In the same way, Jesus offered his sacrifice and mediates for the people of God. Uh, when the angel appeared to Joseph in Matthew 1.21, telling him to take uh, uh, Mary as his wife, the angel, when speaking of Jesus, said he will save his people from their sins. Note that he will save his people from their sins. This follows then that his work is not to save those who are not his people from their sins. In First John or John 1 uh, verses 12 and 13, it tells us uh, that those who believe and have been born of God are the children of God. These are the same ones that Jesus will save uh, from their sins. In John 10 uh, verse 11 and 15, Jesus tells us that he lays down his life for the sheep. He does not say that he lays down his life for those who are not his sheep. He uh, does not lay down his life for the goats. 
in verse 26, just a few verses later, in fact, only 11 verses later, um, in the same chapter, Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews gathered around him that they do not believe in him because they are not his sheep. He had just got done saying that he lays down his life for his sheep. But then he tells these unbelieving Jews that they are not his sheep. Uh, one of the clearest um, scriptures about uh, the atoning work of Christ is Colossians 2.14, where Paul tells us that Jesus canceled the record of death that was against us, nailing it to the cross. Uh, Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross uh, near his death, just before he died, cried out, Tetelestai, um, meaning it is finished. This is in John 19, verse 30. The word Tetelestai is often found written uh, on ancient receipts of payment contemporary uh, to the time of Christ, meaning paid in full. Uh, Jesus was declaring the work of salvation complete and finished, that the debt was paid in full. Um, if the work was complete, the debt paid in full, and the record was canceled, for whom was it canceled and paid? If for all who have ever lived, then none will go to hell, for they could not justly be punished for debts which have been canceled and paid. If Christ did cancel the record by paying for the debt for anyone, then he did for the elect of God, the same sheep for which he laid down his life. Um, those who uh, deny the doctrine of limited atonement from a synergist perspective, um, and if they are not open theists, meaning uh, they believe that God has perfect foreknowledge, the open theists would deny that. Uh, in other words, the future is open to God. Um, he might, uh, the open theist might say that God has uh, a really, can do a really good job of predicting things, you know, with a high degree of probability. But it's still open. He doesn't. He doesn't have certain knowledge of the future. Um, and so, if the synergist, um, Arminian uh, denier of the doctrine of particular redemption, uh, believes that God has perfect foreknowledge of all events in time, uh, then God most assuredly knows who will believe. Right. Uh, so did God pour out his wrath on his son for the sins of those he foreknew would never believe? Did the triune God intend and purpose to accomplish something with the atonement of Christ that he knew with perfect certainty would not and could not happen? Did God send his son into the world to take on the punishment and bear the wrath of God for the sins of uh, a Mayan priest in southern Mexico in 300 A.D.? which God knew would never believe or even hear the gospel. Um, I find that assertion to be rather absurd. Um, this one here is uh, interesting. Uh, thought that I picked up from John Owen in his uh, uh, book on the death of death and the death of Christ. It says, the blood of Christ ransomed all people and purchased the salvation of every single person who has ever lived and the only condition required of men to receive this great salvation is to believe. And believing is something they are quite capable of. Why does God not make known to every single person who has ever lived that this salvation has been purchased for them by his son? And all they must do is believe to receive it. Why are so many left in utter ignorance of their ransom being paid? 
I mean, this is much like a man paying for the release of some people who are held captive, yet never ensuring the captives are even informed of their ransom being paid or making certain that they're released and set free. There they are, captives, remaining in bondage, oblivious to their ransom being paid, entirely ignorant that they are free to go. That's uh, quite amazing. Uh, for me, um, <clears throat> in the last few years, the doctrine of uh, particular redemption, limited atonement, has actually become very important. Uh, while I believed it, I've believed it for many years now, um, I did not uh, believe it was uh, something that, that was, was that critical, uh, was, that, was that important. Um, it was not something I usually discussed even with people. I believed it, but uh, did not. But I have really come to believe that <clears throat> to actually deny the doctrine of limited atonement is a serious problem. I'm not saying the person who denies it is not a Christian um, at all, but I do believe it is serious to actually deny it once it's been laid out clearly uh, for you um, from Scripture. Because, and this is why, because it is a denial of the finished work of, of Christ. Uh, when one denies the doctrine of limited atonement, what they usually end up doing is they end up placing what is now lacking in the work of Christ to save the sinner in the hands of the sinner himself. Uh, the sinner now becomes the one that determines and maintains his own salvation. Uh, this is total synergism and Pelagianism. Uh, the synergist with his denial of limited atonement says that uh, Christ's work is necessary, uh, but not sufficient for the salvation of, of an individual. The person himself makes up what is lacking in the atoning work of Christ to ensure his salvation is both initiated and maintained in and of himself. Uh, salvation is no longer of the Lord, uh, which it tells us in Jonah 2.9. And Jesus is not the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, Philippians 1.6 and Hebrews 12.2. Uh, salvation belongs to man. Uh, man authors and finishes his own faith. That so. Uh, those were my thoughts. That is uh, what I wanted to go over uh, with Michael um, this morning, and uh, does not look like we had the opportunity to do that. So we'll go ahead and uh, publish um, this uh, to the podcast feed and uh, make it available on the YouTube page and the website. And so I don't know when I will do another episode. Uh, I need to get my office done and back into a good working order, and then uh, we will uh, resume uh, uh, the show again. So uh, hopefully uh, that was helpful to someone, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. and. Uh, maybe equipped you to defend it, or maybe uh, by God's grace, it uh, challenges you to think about some of these things, uh, uh, the will and the atoning work of Christ, and uh, maybe rethink some of these things which you uh, maybe have just always had as assumptions. Uh, many of these things, uh, in, uh, especially when it comes to the will and the atonement of Christ, uh, are, are born out of tradition. Um, within evangelical Christianity. It's just what they've always believed and been taught, and they've not really ever had it challenged. And so um, take this as uh, a challenge. Uh, open up the Word of God. 
examine it to see if these things are indeed true as the Bereans did. So God bless. And uh, uh, we will catch you guys uh, on our next broadcast, whenever that is.